This morning we're going to read in Acts chapter 18. So if you have a Bible, please do open it with me. Acts chapter 18. Or if you're reading from a pew Bible this morning, you'll find that on page 1114. We're about to start a, a new series on 1 Corinthians. And Nigel's going to preach on Acts chapter 18 in just a few moments. And Acts chapter 18 really sets the background for us about what's going on in, in 1 Corinthians. So over the next few weeks, we'll be, we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians um, and today, Nigel's going to set the scene for us as we hear about Corinth in chapter 18 of Acts. And we're going to read the first 17 verses here together. So Acts chapter 18, and we're going to read from verse 1 this morning. And this is God's word to us. After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. And there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius, Justice, a worshiper of God. And Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision Do not be afraid, keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. And while Galileo was pro-council of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. And this man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. And just as Paul was about to speak, Galileo said to the Jews, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court, and then they all turned on Sophonius, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Galileo showed no concern whatsoever. Amen. And we thank God for his word and we look forward to hearing it preached just a little bit later. Well, it would be really helpful, I think, if we got our Bibles together and turned to uh, Acts chapter 18. As we said, we're going to start looking at 1 Corinthians, and this is really the setting of 1 Corinthians, how the church in Corinth began as Paul visited it uh, on his second missionary journey. 
Church in Corinth is a, a complicated place. Whenever I hear the phrase messy church, it's a, a phrase about uh, how, how some churches uh, do particular outreach uh, events. Uh, this is what I think of. I think of Corinth, uh, uh, the, the, the original messy church, and uh, it had all sorts of problems. Uh, and yet, in some ways, we should be grateful for that because those problems provided the occasion for Paul to write his letter to them and address all sorts of things that we wouldn't know about if, or so we wouldn't know about as, as much at least, if we did not have his letter about how a church should live in an immoral society, about how we should uh, believe uh, as far as the resurrection is concerned, how we should handle the Lord's Supper, what we should understand about spiritual gifts, all sorts of issues that are really, really important that we wouldn't know as much about if it wasn't for this church in Corinth. And uh, this is how it begins. Paul writes the letter in uh, roughly about AD 53, late AD 53, but he arrives in Corinth in AD 50, and he stays for 18 months. So the, the church is very young whenever he writes the letter of 1 Corinthians to it. And I don't know what you think about Paul. You imagine him sort of uh, conquering all before him sometimes. But he comes to this city, and he's pretty battered. He's pretty bruised. He's pretty cast down at points. And we're going to see that this complicated church is formed by a powerful gospel, but it's also a church that is formed through a pretty fearful apostle. And that's really encouraging for us as we think about what it means to be witnesses in our world today. Well, you see how, how uh, chapter 18 verse uh, 1 starts. After this, it reminds us that this is part of a whole series of events, in particular what we call Paul's secondary, uh, second missionary journey. In his first, he goes through uh, part of uh, modern Turkey. But now on this journey, he revisits some of those places in Turkey. In fact, here's the map. If you like maps, there you are. He revisits some of these places in Turkey. And then he crosses over into Europe, really, into Philippi, and then to Thessalonica. And eventually, he wakes his, makes his way down to Athens. And uh, Acts 17 tells us about Paul in Athens. Athens and Corinth are just 50 miles apart on, on, uh, in real life and on that map. And uh, uh, they are very, very different. A Athens is the sort of the cultural capital uh, with lots of philosophers and debaters and so on. But uh, Corinth is much more of a sort of an economic powerhouse. And you might remember what happens in Athens. Paul debates with the philosophers on Mars Hill. And there's some response, not a tremendous response, but some response. In many other cities, Paul is beaten up, he's thrown in jail and so on. But in Athens, things are, are, are relatively quiet. And you might wonder then why he chooses to leave Athens quite quickly and go those 50 miles down the road to Corinth. And I, I want to suggest to you that the reason is that Corinth is this tremendously strategic city. It's the fifth largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. It has a population of around 200,000, sort of nearly the size of Belfast, whenever Paul was there. It's a, a prosperous city because it stands at the uh, confluence of a number of uh, trade routes. It's positioned just at the, the bottom of that. There's a little isthmus, a little land bridge that uh, joins that little island there. That's about 200 miles to sail right round that bit that says Corinth on it. 
But many ships, it was a pretty treacherous route, so many ships came from Egypt and from Israel and so on, and they came and they offloaded their cargo and then they transported it across the land bridge. Sometimes they actually put the whole ships on rollers and they wheeled them across the, the land bridge. And then they took off again to the rest of the Roman Empire. So because of all of that, lots of trade came into the area. And uh, they really, uh, the whole place was booming. They, they wanted to build a canal. Nero apparently ordered that canal would be built. But uh, it didn't get built until uh, the 19th century. So he was a wee bit, a wee bit late. Um, <clears throat> but... Uh, the, another feature of, of, of Corinth was the Isthmian Games. It was just second to the, the Olympic Games, and, and the uh, athletes arrived every two years, and they came to the Games, and it was outside the city. They stayed in tents whenever they did there. The, the, sort of the Olympic Village was uh, all uh, in tents, and of course, Paul, a tent maker, and Priscilla and Aquila, tent makers, uh, working their trade in the city. And then the other feature of, of Corinth, for which it was pretty famous, was its immorality. It was an immorality that was mixed with religion. Uh, on the, 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 sort of the raised area above the city stood the temple of Aphrodite or, or Venus, one of the wonders of the ancient world. The ruins are there today, but it was staffed by 10,000 cultic prostitutes who came down to the city at night to work among the population and the sailors and so on. And so popu- Corinth was a place of sexual freedom, of license, so much so that the term Corinthian was used across the empire to describe somebody who practiced excess or, or sexual excess. So here, it's this city that, that, that Paul comes to. It's, it's prosperous, it's influential, it's immoral, and Paul walks up the road towards it. And, and this is our first sort of, I guess, point of application, a little lesson to learn. Lots of this is introductory today, but a little lesson to learn as we are thinking about this setting of this letter. And that is that as Paul comes and sees the city, he moves towards this place of rebellion and sin. We see that Paul has a real missionary heart, heart that we're all called to have, that loves people, that loves to bring the good news of Jesus to people. And Paul's missionary heart means that he moves towards rebellion and sin. You think of the options whenever he is faced with something like that. One is to go in the opposite direction, or at least to stay where he was. He'd find himself in a place that wasn't terribly difficult, not as difficult as some of the other places. Maybe it was a sign to settle down and take things easier, but, but that's not what he does. He moves towards it. Another option, of course, is, is that he could have come but watered down his message. In some ways, Corinth exemplifies many of the excesses of our culture today. And you know that in some parts of the world, in some parts of our, our culture indeed, that the church has accommodated to the culture. It has said, well, what you're doing is okay, but maybe you should think about God as well. Now, that's exactly what Paul does not do. I've been really struck by this. As we read through Corinthians, you'll see that he, he calls the believers there who come out of this very messy culture, he calls them to a very solid, high Christian ethic, high Christian moral standards. The fact that they live in a city where anything goes doesn't make him water down the message. He continues to say, this is how Christians are to live. So he could avoid Corinth, but he doesn't. He could accommodate to Corinth, but he doesn't. 
Rather, he approaches Corinth and seeks to evangelize it with the good news of Jesus. I don't know if you know the name C.T. Studd. He was a famous cricketer many, many years ago. He became a missionary to China, to India, to Africa. And he said this, some want to live within the sound of church and chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. That's the sort of spirit that, that Paul exemplified. The gospel compelled him to go to where the need was great so that eventually the church grew, as somebody said, like a flower out of the mud. And, and that's Christ-likeness, isn't it? It's, it's, it's not only a missionary heart, it's a Christ-like heart because this is what God does. God so loved the world that he gave his son. He loves this world in its rebellion and its need. And so Paul is not going to shy away from those who are the most lost of the lost. Athens was lost, but the situation in Corinth was much worse. It was there he went. Now, we who are believers here this morning, we face these issues again and again. Every day we face these things. We're tempted sometimes to settle down and avoid the difficult situations around us. We're tempted to accommodate the message to the culture around us. And yet we're to do neither of those things. We're to approach need in all of its messiness and bring to it the good news of Jesus Christ. It is perhaps God's intention that in some of the muddiest patches around your life and mine, new shoots of the gospel will take root. So that's the first thing. God, uh, uh, this missionary heart of Paul, leads him to approach this situation of rebellion and sin. Well, back to our story. This doesn't mean it was easy, of course. You can understand that Paul uh, says in his first letter that he comes with fear and trembling. Corinth was a challenging and intimidating place. And he comes and he finds some kindred spirits in Aquila and Priscilla. They're Jews. They have been expelled by Rome, uh, from Rome by the emperor Claudius. Historians tell us at the time that a, a dispute arose within Judaism, within the city of Rome, and it looks as if it was over Christianity. The, the Romans saw Christianity as a sort of a, a subsection of Judaism, a sect within Judaism. And so they got fed up with the uproar that was happening within the Jews, uh, debating over Christ, and they threw everybody out, Jews and Christians. And it looks as if, therefore, Aquila and Priscilla were already Christians. By the time they met Paul, they were tent makers. It was easy for Paul to work alongside them. We still use this phrase, tent maker, to describe a missionary who has another job to support themselves, uh, to gain access to a closed country, perhaps. And this is where it comes from. So, so Paul worked through the week, but at the weekends, he's there in the synagogue seeking to persuade the Jews who were there that Jesus is the Christ. And you can imagine the thrust of the conversation. He's saying, the one that you're looking for has come. The Messiah has come. He's died for our sins. He's been raised again. All of Scripture points to him, and Jesus is the one that your heart cries for. 
Now, this work steps up a gear whenever Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia. They, they seem to have brought him a gift that allows him to be full-time in the work. He focuses on the synagogue full-time. And, of course, at this point, the synagogue begin to get pretty annoyed at him, and the response is not good. And so he shakes off his garments, rather like Jesus told the disciples to shake the dust off their feet at an unresponsive village. And then he goes to the Gentiles. And he moves just next door. That must have annoyed the synagogue. He moves just next door to the house of Titius Justus. And things then start to really happen. The synagogue ruler, oddly, Crispus, is converted along with his household. That must have really annoyed the synagogue. And then many other Gentiles who listen to Paul, they come to faith. God is really blessing this work. But it's at that point that God gives Paul a vision tells him not to be afraid. And presumably the reason that God says this is that Paul was afraid, that he was discouraged, that he was being tempted to to give up and to stop speaking. Because though he's sold out in his service of the Lord, Paul is very human. He gets discouraged. If you look back over his journey, you you can understand it. He's had opposition in many places. He's been in jail. He's been flogged. He's He's been beaten. And presumably, he's very physically worn down, spiritually, mentally worn down. And you see what God says, verse 9? Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. God tells him to keep on speaking. He's going to have some measure of protection. He's going to have God's presence with him, marvelous encouragement. But then you see, He says, I have many people in this city. Now, you think of what's being said here. There are many mentioned as being converted in verse 8. Do you see that? But there's a many of those who heard Paul. But what God promises is many in the city. This is a greater many. And those people do not as yet believe in Jesus. Shelley was saying that. God has many people who his purpose is to save, and they have not yet come to faith. So this is God saying, you think of it, he's God saying, my purpose is to save many people from this city. I've known them from before time. My son has died for them. They will come and be my people, but they're not there yet. So you, Paul, you keep speaking. And how does Paul respond? Well, that brings us to our our second application And that is that this missionary heart rests in God's initiative and salvation. It's really clear, isn't it? God takes the initiative and salvation. He knows that there are people he's going to save in this mess of a city, Corinth. Luke understands that the very fact that people come to faith is because of God's initiative and salvation. Back in Acts chapter 13, verse 48, you may want to flick back to it. Acts 13, 48, Luke describes the visit of Paul and Barnabas to city in Antioch. They begin to preach to the Gentiles, and this is what Luke says. This is Luke 13, 48, a very important verse. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. You see, God is determined to bring these people to faith in himself. He has appointed them for that purpose. Now, it's important. 
Some people might hear that and say, well, if that's the case, that's great. Pressure's off. If God's going to save them, he's going to save them. I don't need to do anything. But that would be a faulty logic, according to God. Because you see what he's saying here. I'm going to save, so Paul, you keep on speaking. My determination to save must lead to you speaking about Jesus. You see, the the truth of Scripture is not only to be believed in and of itself. We also must believe and submit to the logic of Scripture too. And Paul clearly does, because you see in verse 11 it says, So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the Word of God. It's one of the longest periods that he stays in any place. And he teaches, and the people are gathered in. Now, friends, we, we don't have, we don't have a direct promise of God to us and our circumstances in the same way that Paul did. But we do need to apply the same logic. We live in a day of grace. God is still calling people to himself. Jesus is still building his church. So what do we do? Well, like Paul, like God encourages us to, we keep on speaking, we keep on praying, we keep on witnessing and trusting that God will do it. For it may be that God has many people who are as yet, not yet converted, but they're in your friendship circle, they're in your workplace, they're in your family, and his intention is to bring them in. God takes the initiative in salvation, so don't be afraid. Keep speaking. Don't be silent. God's initiative in salvation, you see, it empowers our witness. Missionary heart relies on this. Well, there's a final scene in the story just to to complete it, the, the, the Jews in Corinth, well, they're really miffed at the moment because not only have they managed to throw out Paul from the synagogue, but then Crispus has been converted, and then Paul has all of this success and so on. And so they bring some charges against him, and they bring them against Galileo, the, the, uh, Galileo, the, the, the proconsul. Uh, this would have happened, you can go to this spot today in Corinth, this would have happened in the main square Authorities would have sat up on this raised uh, platform. Paul would have been standing below them with the, 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 those who were opposing him and so on, presenting their case. But it looks as if they've got Gallo there, Gallio there under false pretenses. They say, verse 13, this man is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. They, they were accusing Paul of promoting an illegal religion. Rome kept control of religion within the empire, and some religious ideas were indeed illegal. But when Gallio starts to hear the case, he clearly rules that Christianity is not one of them. He sees it as a dispute within Judaism. You see, he says, since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves. He throws it out of court. And the Jews turn on the newly elected synagogue ruler, not a job you really want, Sosthenes, and they give him a beating. His six-month review was not very favorable, it seems. Now, this is very important because for, for the church at the time, it, it establishes the legitimacy of Christianity. It gives it some legal protection within Corinth, within the region. 
And, and so for those people in that day, it was really important. We're understanding about the, the value of legal protection for the church in our days, aren't we? But not only that, there's a great note of grace here that we wouldn't immediately see. And it's in this chap, Sosthenes, who failed his six-month review so badly. We're going to see next week in the opening letter, opening verses of the Corinthians, this is how it starts. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother, Sosthenes. By the time Paul wrote his letter, a couple of years later, Sosthenes has been converted. He's traveled with him to Ephesus. And God has worked in his heart to bring him to himself, you see. You wonder how it happened. You know, did, did the hostility of his Jewish friends against him make him think, what am I doing here? Did he see the obvious hand of God upon Paul? Has he heard Paul's teaching and the truth of it starting to dawn in his heart as he's standing there bringing the charges against Paul in, in the square in Corinth? Is he already thinking, Do you know, I'm on the wrong side of this debate? There may be some people in your life this week who are giving you a hard time for being a Christian. But deep down they're saying, I'm on the wrong side of this debate. Pray for that. You see, this is our God. Whenever he says, I have many people in this city, one of them was Sosthenes. So here's the background to this church in Corinth. It's messy and complicated, as we'll see. It's formed by a powerful gospel that can call people like Crispus and Sosthenes to himself. And it's brought through this trembling apostle who needs the assurance of God, even as he reaches out with the good news. If you're seeking to reach out with the good news, You've got to know this too. The gospel you share is powerful to change lives. It's all that is. And you know what? God cares for you as you do it. So keep on speaking and don't be silent. Let's pray. Lord, we're just amazed at these stories of how the church begins out of nothing, and yet you're the God that brings marvelous things out of nothing. Lord, you've done that in our lives, you've done that in our communities, and we pray that we will see you doing that more and more. Lord, as we continue to learn about Corinth, we pray that you'll give us some of this missionary heart that moves towards situations of needs and brings the gospel to them. And we pray in Jesus' name.